Come on, let's celebrate that if we can. Isn't it great? Yeah, so good. Wow. It's so much fun. Isn't that exciting and inspiring? Just beautiful. Congratulations to everyone who took this important step to follow Christ in obedience, to be baptized. If you've not been baptized, listen for the next opportunity, and you'll want to include yourself in that great sacrament of water baptism. Well, thank you for bringing your Bibles with you today. We're going to look at 1 Samuel, some selected passages there, look at some lives and learn some important, important um, principles that we can learn about how to anchor our lives securely to the only foundation which is secure, which is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today I hope you'll be encouraged uh, by the message, The Anchor Holds. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel. I'm going to be re- begin reading in the first chapter there and some selected other passages in 1 Samuel. So as you're able, our custom is to stand to hear God's Word. 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning at verse 9. And when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. And in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. And as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart. Her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli, who's the high priest, Hannah is this barren young woman who's praying that God will give her a son. Eli thought she was drunk. Now, make note of that. Now, look at chapter 2, if you will, at verse 12. Eli, the high priest, had two sons. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Their names were Hophni and Phinehas. They were deadbeats. They were slackers, not worth too much. Now look at verse 18. But Samuel, this is now the son of Hannah. God has answered her prayer. She's given birth to a son, and she has given him to the Lord. And he's being raised now in the temple, the Jewish temple. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord a boy wearing a linen ephah, in other words, the garments of a priest. Now look at chapter 3 and verses 19 and 20. This is more reference to Samuel. He's a little older now. The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. In other words, his words had meaning. God spoke through him. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. Now chapter 4, verses 2 to 11. This is a battle now that the Israelites have with the Philistines. And the Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. And when the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, this the ark of the Lord, this is the wooden box that Moses constructed in the wilderness. They put the Ten Commandments in there originally. And it's the physical, symbolic representation of the presence of God. You saw the movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's that, that one. Verse 4, So the people sent to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. 
Hearing the uproar, the Philistines ask, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. God has come into their camp, they said. Oh, no, nothing like this has happened. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Then someone apparently from the Philistine camp says, look, hey, be strong, be men. You'll be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now up to verse 18. Word now gets back to the high priest about this great defeat. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man. He was very heavy. He led Israel 40 years. Now, one more reference now from chapter 5, the first six verses. This is after this battle, after the Philistines had captured the Ark of God. They took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple. Now, Dagon is one of their idols. He's a fish god. He's got a, he's got a fish body and a human face and human hands. He's a creepy, creepy fish god, Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. Finally, verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy, heavy in a negative way. On the people of Ashdod and its vicinity, he brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. Now, the, the word tumors here is not a good translation. The, the Hebrew language from which this is translated, the scholars couldn't bring themselves, I guess, to translate this literally. But the literal translation from the Hebrew to English is not tumors. It is hemorrhoids. And, of course, the message is obvious and plain, right? Pagan worship, idol worship is a real pain in, pain in the... Thank you. You may be seated. <laughs> Let me tell you the true story of a young pastor and his wife, who's five months pregnant at the time, and two other couples. They're very close friends, and they go on a dream vacation together to the Caribbean. They rent a large sail, sailing vessel, 65-foot uh, sailboat with a skipper and a cook, the whole thing. They're having the time of their lives. They're sailing around the island of St. Thomas in the Caribbean. The last night of their dream vacation, they pull into this cove, and the cove is spectacular. There's no development in this cove. The water is completely calm and pristine, emerald green, blue water. Uh, a dozen or so other boats there, some of them pulling skiers, you know, in this cove. And... and and the skipper of their boat back the sailboat to within just uh, 30 or 40 feet from the, from the shoreline. And as they're swimming, all their friends are swimming around the boat that evening, the skipper, the, the captain of the ship, he takes four ropes and he ties them off the stern of this boat and ties them into the mango, mangrove roots that are intertwined on the shoreline and securely fastens these four heavy ropes off the stern of this boat. 
Then he puts on his scuba gear, not, not just a snorkel mask and fins, but the tank, the whole business. And he throws a very heavy anchor on a chain, heavy rope off the bow of this boat. He dives in after it and then physically walks this anchor about 200 feet out in front of this boat and anchors it securely. He then takes a smaller anchor and does the same thing. Then after that, he takes two more heavy ropes, hundreds of feet long, and he gets in his dinghy, and he takes these ropes off the bow of this boat to the shoreline and anchors them to trees on either side of the cove. So this boat now has eight lines, securing it to the shorelines around this cove and on these huge anchors out in front of the boat. And of course, the the guests on the boat are wondering what's up with the skipper, you know. Old Popeye's, you know, really anchoring the boat tonight because the previous nights he just dropped a single anchor and the boat kind of floated around that anchor all night. But this night he went to this extreme measure. And fortunately for them, the skipper had been listening to the weather reports. Hurricane Marilyn had taken an unexpected turn and had the Caribbean in its crosshairs. And the skipper was aware that this hurricane was going to hit Maryland packed winds of about 125 miles an hour with gusts up to 140, class 3 hurricane. And about 8 o'clock that evening, it began to rain. At 9 o'clock, the rain was horizontal. And those people on that boat rode out that storm that night. Many times they said the wind was so fierce that it threatened to capsize, tip the, tip the entire boat over. That one uh, juncture in the evening, about 4 in the, four in the morning, the gauge that measured the wind that was affixed to the mast of this uh, ship with a digital readout in the cabin said 125 miles an hour and it locked there in place. They learned in the morning that the wind had simply blown it off the mast and was gone. When sunrise came the next morning, there was nothing but devastation across the cove. Every other boat in the cove had either been sunk or blown up on the shoreline and completely damaged. The radio indicated that two police stations had been blown away on St. Thomas. The hospital had to be evacuated. A billion and a half dollars in damage. Eight people had lost their lives as Hurricane Maryland went through that island. There was only one boat left in that cove that was still functional. It took them all day to secure the boat, but at 5 o'clock the next evening, they motored out of that cove. And they were the only boat that did. Now let me give you a verse of scripture. It's in Proverbs chapter 27, verse 12. And it reads like this. Lord, help us to see trouble coming long before it gets here. And give us the wisdom to know what to do and the courage to do it. How many of you think that's a good prayer? Yeah, give us insight, Lord, on what to do. Well, let me just uh, lay this foundation for this message this morning. What you anchor your life to matters. Because what you anchor your life to, who you anchor your life to, will determine your life's direction and your life's destiny. If you're going to make it as a follower of Jesus Christ in any kind of authentic version of that in 2016 North America, you will need to affix your lives to the virtues, the values, and the people who actually understand the will and ways of God and have anchored their lives securely to Jesus Christ. Because only he is the anchor that holds. He's he's it. 
But the good news is today that you can take confidence in that. Because when you affix your life to Jesus, you will discover that he is an anchor that holds in your life no matter what comes. Can I get a witness? It's true. It's true. Now let me uh, just uh, move into the sermon now because there are characters that we have read about here in 1 Samuel that give us evidence of what not to anchor your life to. These folks have lost their way. And I want to just offer the contrast today so that we can know for sure how to anchor our lives and what to avoid. First thing on your outline is this. These people, some of these people, embraced a false spirituality. False spirituality. And that's happening in today's world. One of the overriding, perhaps the overriding philosophical worldview in North America right now, North American culture, is materialism. Materialism is the belief that everything that exists, ultimate reality, can be discerned and measured by our five senses. So what I can see here, taste, feel, and touch, whatever those, I think I, one of those was missing. Five senses interprets ultimate reality. If I can't discern it with my five senses, then it's not real. This is a materialistic worldview. Many, many people have this worldview in our culture today. But it is, as you would imagine, a frank denial of the supernatural reality of the universe. It is a denial of the possibility that there is a God who exists in the world, who is a spirit and invisible to us with our five senses. And yet people insist on a materialistic worldview in our culture, and I think it is a very destructive thing. Let me give you three examples of where materialism surfaces in our culture. One is in institutions and government. Materialism is noticed when people place all of their hope, all of their sense of, of source and accommodation and security on what an institution or the government can provide for me. Now, what I'm about to say is not a political statement. It's simply trying to help us understand a, what a biblical worldview looks like. That our ultimate source and our ultimate security does not come from the government. There are people, though, growing numbers of people in our culture, even folks who are Christian people and, and religious people, who are more and more leaning on the notion that government is responsible to take care of me that some kind of social program or welfare is the only thing that will sustain my life. And if government doesn't provide it for me, I won't make it. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, there are people who have a philosophy that says, from a materialistic worldview, that government should be smaller and lessened, but, but national security should be upgraded. And so the, the, the military uh, should be well-armed. Well and if we have a strong national defense, then we will be secure. And both, both of those extremes, anyone who, who recognizes institutions or the government at large as our source, our security, and our hope, lives in a delusion. There is no such thing as being secure based on what a government can do. The only place we can find security and the only place we can find our source is in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only place that we will find ultimate meaning. 
Now, there's another evidence, not only in institutions, but materialism manifests itself also in technology. Now, here's what I mean. We now have the, gro the growing borders of science without the corresponding ethics to monitor and inform the science that we're discovering and practicing. Science has become glorified in our day. This is, again, in keeping with our five senses. If we can't, if we can't validate it scientifically through our five senses, then it can't be real. And so it carries over into this technological realm where we have come to believe that science is the end all of everything. It can fix everything, heal everything, create everything. But we have now a, a great conflict. We have this clash of worldviews that is happening in our culture. Genetic engineering, human cloning research, biotechnology, the blending of man and machines. These things are developing at an incredible rate without a fundamental prevailing ethic that recognizes godly values, ultimate truth, biblical values of life and meaning. And when we allow science and the, and the technology that's advancing and developing to, to race ahead of the ethical boundaries that we put in place to protect ourselves, then we're doomed. We're doomed to do something really devastating and destructive. Now, you may be pushing back and say, well, look, you just don't like change. You're just old. You don't like change. You don't like the new technology. You probably still have a, you know, a landline in your house. Well, I, I don't. Took it out last week. No, it was long before that. Let me give you an illustration from history, though. The most accelerated scientific community in the world in the 1930s was Germany. Now, remember your history. The same technocracy that invented the Autobahn, making automobiles available to the common man, the first nation that split the atom, is also the nation that created mass murder on an industrial scale. Wow. So science without an anchor in a sure place can become demonic and destructive. Here's another evidence of a materialistic worldview that, which is prevalent in our culture, and that is that it can be anchored to pleasure. A sensualist, a man or woman who anchors their lives to sensations that bring pleasure, these are people that we know historically, when we look back in history, we read the Bible and we see the historical pattern, people who pursue pleasure for selfish reasons are people who always end up in a destructive pattern. They destroy themselves, and they destroy the people around them. There's nothing new under the sun. If you're a person living in 2016, and you only have a 20-year window of perspective on the world, you've only been alive 20 years, or, or you've only been an adult 20 years, something like that, and, and you are only seeing through this narrow window of history, listen, you don't have a clue what's going on in the world we're living in. I mean, if, that's, if this is the only part of the world you understand, then you're not going to get it. You've got to, you've got to study. You've got to look back. You've got to see human trends. You've got to see when people act like this, this is what happens. When people run, turn their back on God and run this direction, this is what happens. When people turn to God and embrace God and anchor their lives in Jesus Christ, these are the benefits and blessings. And when you get perspective like that, it'll help you with your worldview. And here I'm telling you that we have a materialistic culture that has anchored itself to sensuality. And as a result of that, lives are being destroyed. 
And not only are the lives of people who embrace a sensualist worldview, but the people around them are being hurt and damaged by it. The greatest evidence of this is the crisis in manhood in our culture. Men have lost their way in American culture. There are, there are all kinds of reasons for this. There are all kinds of social reasons and cultural reasons, and I think spiritual reasons as well. And you, it's understandable why men kind of give in and give up and just succumb to the pressure. And they, they, they've moved to a different role and a different place many times in our culture. And it is a huge crisis. It's an epidemic that has led to all kinds of levels of irresponsibility and illegitimacy and all the, all the effects that occur in a society when a family unravels. We're seeing it in America. We're watching the collapse of modern culture. It's happening right in front of our eyes. And I think central to that collapse is the failure on the part of men and the failure of culture to recognize the role of men. Now you may say, well, you're just, you know, you're a man, you're a white man, so what, you know, you're, you're after something. Here's what I'm after. I'm after men who are willing to embrace the virtues of anchoring their lives to Jesus Christ, his will and his ways, rather than anchoring their lives to the cultural compromises of sensuality and selfishness. That's what I'm standing for. That's what I mean. There's a way, there's a way that God has ordered for society and for family structure and that's the way that we should model our lives. There's a way. And then there are other ways. But that's not the best way. God's way is the best way. And so we need to stand in a place where men are godly men, virtuous in their life, virtuous in their faith, virtuous in their patterns, virtuous in their leadership, and willing to stand in the way, the best way that God has designed for us. So that we are secure in God's plan for our lives. And we say, look, here I am. You don't have to like me. You don't have to agree with me. You don't have to do any of that. But here I am. I'm standing in the center of God's will. And it's reflective in my own heart, my own life, my own patterns. And it's reflective in my family's life, in my children's lives, in my grandchildren's lives. So you can either anchor your life to sensuality. Or you can anchor your life to the prevailing virtue of Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you that anchoring your life to Jesus is what brings matter and meaning to your life. Amen. That's good preaching right there. Hey, I'll cheerlead for myself if I have to. I'll do whatever I need to. Now, here's the second thing. We, we are living in the context of a corrupt culture. Now, we can identify with these Philistines. A corrupt culture. The Philistines in this story represent our current culture. The culture danger that we face in America is not, is not turning our back on the existence of God. Now that's not good, but that's not primarily our problem. We have atheism that's becoming more popular in our culture right now. It's getting some traction. You have some really smart people, or, uh, high IQs anyway, they're not very smart, who are saying that, you know, there is no God and you're foolish. Ha ha, you know, Funny on you, you know, what a, what a simpleton you are if you believe in God. But if, again, if you take a view of history, what you'll discover is that atheism raises its head from time to time. Certain philosophers come along and authors come along, now scientists come along. There is no God, come on. And, and so we see these patterns from time to time. 
But atheism never gets any traction for any long period of time in the world. And the reason for that is because it's really dumb. It's just stupid. Let me, let me just be frank about this. I could be a Hindu before I could be an atheist. I could believe that there's a million different gods before I could believe there is no God. And what will happen in your life at some point, inevitably, uh, whether you, if you're honest enough to acknowledge it, is that you will come in a moment when you realize, if I don't get some kind of power, some kind of strength, some kind of virtue beyond myself, I can't make it. And so what happens is the reason atheism gets popular until, until global crisis happens, and when there's global crisis, then everybody turns to God. Because we know if God doesn't bail us out, we're done. <laughs> so atheism kind of loses traction. We're in the middle of one of these peaks right now of atheism, but listen, I predict this. Thus saith the Lord, it won't last. And I can, and I can tell you in eternity there won't be one atheist. If you're an atheist in the room today, it won't last. Oh, yeah, I'll be an atheist forever. Hmm. No, you won't. No. No, you won't. Because you're going to meet God. We're all going to meet God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing about atheism People who embrace atheism, not everyone, but most people who embrace atheism are either hurt or angry or both. And let me tell you what happens. They get angry with their parents or they get angry with someone who hurt them and so they blame God. And so the best way to get even with God is to deny he exists. This is what human beings do. We get hurt, we get in a tragedy, we get in a mess and we go, God, why would you allow this to happen to me? You know, you must be a bad God. You know, I, I don't like you, God. I, in fact, I hate you, God. And... And because you've allowed this to happen to me, what's the, what's the best way to get even with him? I'll pretend like he doesn't exist. You're not real. That'll fix him. And like I say, it won't last. One old rabbi once reflected, when I look back on the Holocaust, I can see how someone might not believe in God, but how could they not believe in the devil? That's a great question. So atheism isn't a real problem in America. Our real problem is the same problem that existed with the Philistines. Our problem is pantheism. This smorgasbord of gods. This whole menu of gods. You see, the Philistines, they didn't reject the God of Israel. In fact, they believed in the God of Israel. They were afraid of the God of Israel. They'd heard about the God of Israel. So when they captured the ark, the physical representation of the God of Israel, they just took that God... And set it down with their God, Dagon, this fish God. And here's, what, and here's what happened. The first night they're together, the Ark of the Covenant with Dagon in Dagon's temple in a town called Ashdod, that night the, 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 the pagan god Dagon gets pushed over onto its face. The next morning the Philistines come in and they go, Oh, Dagon, our God, fell over, fell over on his face. Let's prop him back up. So they propped him back up. I wonder if it crossed the mind of one of these Philistines thinking, you know, maybe we shouldn't have these two guys in here together. Maybe they're not getting along. Maybe something's not quite right. Asking these gods to coexist. 
Would you like to be a fly on the wall in the middle of the night? The glory and power of Almighty God rises up out of the ark and looks at this pagan, this little pagan idol and, and goes, uh, no way, dude, and just shoves him down, face down. So the next night they, they wake up the next morning, they go in, and now this time Dagon, he's not only fallen on his face, but his head's whacked off and his hands are lopped off. <laughs> and the message is abundantly clear. This is Almighty God sending a message to the Philistines saying, look, you're God. He's inoperative. He, can't, he has no head. He can't talk. He can't communicate. He, he can't think. He's not helpful to you. And his hands are, he, he has no power. He has no influence in your lives. But we live in a culture now that says, hey, yeah, whatever. You say to a person, do, do, do you, what do you think about Jesus? Oh, I like Jesus. He's interesting. You know, he's an inspiring fellow in history. Some of his teachings are very, very interesting and make me feel good when, when I think about them. And, and yeah, I like Jesus. In fact, in fact, I have a cross hanging on my window next, right next to my energy crystals. <laughs> do, you, do you ever read the Bible? You look at, ever look at the scripture? Well, sometimes, sometimes I, I look at the scripture. In fact, I've got one of those little apps on my phone and I read the verse of the day, and that comes in just about the same time every day as, as my electronic horoscope. And so I read the verse of the day in my horoscope. Do, do, do you ever watch preachers on TV or anything like that? Well, I don't watch. Well, there is one TV preacher that I watch, and when I listen to him, he always makes me feel better. I, I like to listen to him because he makes me feel good. And so he comes on just before Hollywood medium and paranormal activity. And so we have people now in our culture who, who embrace this whole smorgasbord of variations. And the real challenge to Christians is to find a culturally relevant way to communicate a timeless message of God's hope through Jesus Christ from, this people, from people who are choosing from a smorgasbord of spiritual and philosophical options. Now, having said all of that, listen, here's my point, and I hope I can bring this home. There is a real and present and ultimate danger to a culture that adds to Jesus an amoral, neo-pagan, spiritualist practice, which is what the Western cultures of the world are doing right now. There is a real and present and ultimate danger. And let me tell you what it is. God won't stand for it. God won't stand for it. He won't put up with that. He won't be some co-equal and coexist with some phony, fake, counterfeit idol, some lesser, some lesser spiritual force. He is the God of all creation who has made everything that is. And He alone, Almighty God, is the one we are to worship and to serve. There is no equal to God. He will not coexist. He will not stand for that. Now, where do you get that? You know, there you go again, all narrow-minded and bigoted and hateful toward other people's spirituality. The, where I'm getting this is from the story in the scriptures in 1 Samuel. When they try to put one of the pagan gods in with Almighty God, and he will not tolerate that. He will not, he will not submit to that kind of experience. So the danger of pantheism is that we lose sight of the one true living and dynamic God and create this moral cloud 
devoid of the absolutes of our faith and the imperatives of our morality. And so here we are, friends, in an opportunity in 2016 as the followers of Jesus. And these are two things that we need. Number one, we need to be resolute. And by resolute, I mean there are certain things that God has made clear to us about how we live and what we believe. And so we are going to embrace those doctrinal imperatives and those moral absolutes with resolution. Now, in the midst of taking a stand and making sure the, the, the way is made clear, we are resolute about that, but we want to be loving and we want to be compassionate at the same time. Now, maybe you've never used those words together, but this is an important distinction. We need to be lovingly and compassionately resolute because there will be people who disagree, people who are choosing other styles, uh, people who are, who are believing a different philosophy. And, and so we want to be loving and we want to be compassionate. We want to meet people where we are. That's the right thing to do. But we must remain resolute. And in order to do that, we also must have courage. Proverbs 27, 12 again. Help us to see what's coming and then have and know what to do and then the courage to do it. And so we have to be courageous, resolute and courageous. And that's the call of God on a generation that is collapsing right in front of our eyes, that is dissolving the moral and ethical standards that have made our culture great are dissolving and unraveling right before us. And so we must be resolute and we must be courageous. It takes courage to say, look, all human life is sacred. It is the gift of Almighty God. We are created in the image and likeness of God. It makes us distinct in all of the created order. So human life is sacred. It's holy. And so we shouldn't be taking human life, either when it's in the womb or out of the womb. It's a bad idea. It violates God's best plan. Life is sacred. We also know the standards for marriage. God's design and his architecture for marriage is one man with one woman for a lifetime. That's his plan. That's it. That's the way. If someone chooses a different way or a different combination, that's not the way. There's God's way and then there are other ways. And it takes courage to hold that position. So you have to decide what you're going to anchor to. You have to decide who you're going to anchor to. Decide where your life goes. That leads us to this last thought, which is false worship. We see it on display here. Now, false worship, by saying that, I'm talking about an inauthentic spirituality. Here's what happened in our story. The Israelites had lost 4,000 men in a battle the day before, and so they said, let's get the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe that will give us a spiritual advantage. And so they bring the ark from Shiloh into the camp, and they have a big explosion. They have a momentary pep rally. I mean, it's the, the, the worship celebration is so grand, so great, that the ground shakes. The Philistines across the valley, they hear it going on, and it scares, scares them to death. What is going on over there? Oh, they've got their, their God showed up. Oh, man, now, now their God is there. Now we're in trouble. Now we're, now we're doomed. And someone in the Philistine camp in the middle of that says, wait a minute, wait a minute. They have a God, that's fine, we have a God. They have men, we have men. We beat them yesterday, we can beat them tomorrow. So, you know, buck it up. Let's, let's encourage ourselves. And someone encouraged them. And so the next day they went out and, and it was a horrible defeat for the Israelites. Unbelievable carnage. 
And when word gets back to Eli that his sons have died and the ark has been taken away, he falls backwards and he's dead. And the only reason he's heavy, he's a, fat, he's a morbidly obese, is because he's been eating more of the sacrifices brought to, to the temple for the sacrifice, the animal sacrifices. There's, there's a, there was a rule there that when the, when the pot of meat was boiling as a sacrifice to God, that the, that the priest could reach in with a fork, and whatever he pulled out on a fork, that, that was his portion. Everything else belonged to God. But Eli apparently was using more than a fork. Because nobody, nobody in this moment in history were fat. This, was, this wasn't modern America. This is where everybody was pencil thin, you know, happy to have enough. There was one guy in the whole, in the whole nation who was fat. Is the high priest. It's not good. It's not good. It's just the wrong, it's just the wrong impression. And so Eli falls over and he's dead. One of, the, one of the wives of either Phineas or Hophni his sons is nine months pregnant. She, when she hears the news, her husband's been killed. She goes, and her father-in-law's dead. She goes into labor, she, and while she's delivering this son, she dies in childbirth. The son is born. You know what they called him? Some of you know the name of this boy. They named him Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. And here's the application point, friends. Where worship becomes nothing than a momentary pep rally led by and participated in by people with corrupt motives. Destruction will always follow. Listen to this now. Just because you're in this room this morning does not make you a spiritual person. Just because you're in this room this morning does not make you a worshiper of Almighty God. Just because you came in here and you sang the song and you've acted nice and you're listening to the sermon, you're going to hang on to the end, does not make you any closer to God than when you came in today. All of that is dependent on the motives of your heart and the condition and desires of your heart. If you are sincerely a seeker after God and want to know his truth and want to live for Jesus, and you have motives that are open and pure, then when you enter into a worship experience with his people, you're going to experience God and encounter God and be touched by God. You're only spiritual as a human being to the degree that you experience God in your life. Going through the motions and playing the game and going along and acting all nice and trying to impress people that, that, that you actually know God doesn't fool God what, whatsoever. And the way you'll find out whether or not you're really connected to God is when, is when crisis hits and the hurricanes and the storms of life hit your life because they will. Everyone in this room has either been in a storm or you're heading into one right now. And you'll find out if your anchor is secure. You'll find out when the storms hit. So the admonition for this message this morning is to, if, if you're loosely connected, get better connected to the anchor. I mean, anchor up. Storms are coming. Now here's the good news. Here's the encouragement. My wife Beth and I, some of you know, we're in a storm right now. We're in hurricane force winds right now. Right now. And we will be for, for months to come until we pop through the other side. But here's, here's my witness. And God is my witness. God hears what I'm saying right now. Here's the witness. Let me tell you what, what is true, what we're discovering. The anchor holds. 
The anchor holds. Nobody in here going through anything more challenging than what I'm going through, my wife is going through right now. And I'm here to give witness. The anchor holds. The anchor holds. As it turns out, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, I'll put this on the screen for you, is true. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, which is firm and secure. Maybe you're in a storm right now, too. Maybe you feel a little disconnected. Listen, all you need to do is hook up again. Hook up again. Anchor your life to Jesus. Trust Him. Rely on Him. Look to Him as your source. Look to Him for your security. Look to Him for your protection. Look to Him as your help. And He will not disappoint you. Do you have ears for that? The anchor holds, friends. So hold on. Don't let go. Don't let loose. Don't compromise. Don't give in. Hang on to Jesus, and you won't be disappointed. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for your word, which lamps our feet and lights our path. We are so thankful to you for these examples of what to do and what not to do. Lord, we all confess to you today that we're weak and we fail and we fall short. And maybe we can identify with a lot of these issues that are false and weak. Maybe we feel a bit disconnected from you today. So, Lord, I pray for anyone in the room today that if you feel disconnected, friend, just offer your life afresh and anew to Jesus. Say, Lord, I want to connect with you. I want want you to be my anchor. I've affixed my life to all kinds of people and things, and gosh, it just doesn't work. It doesn't hold when life gets hard and difficult. So, Lord, I need to affix my life to you. And I pray for those of you who are securely anchored to Jesus. I pray today that you'll receive a spirit that makes you resolute to live for him no matter what. And that you'll be filled with courage. You'd be encouraged to stand for Jesus and to live for him despite what the world says and how much pressure comes to bear upon you. That you will live faithfully and honorably, holy before him. And for those of you in the room today and you say, look, Pastor Greg, I know my anchor is secure. I'm, I'm hanging on to Jesus, the anchor holds, and I'm excited about what God is doing in my life and through my life, then I pray that you'll come alive like you've never been alive before, that you'll be a fire for God, that your light will shine bright, that you'll be an influence not only for yourself and your own peace of mind and heart, but you'll be an influence in the lives of people around you. Lord, bless all of us, each one of us, as we seek to follow you. Help us to find our hope in you, the anchor of our soul. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. All right, would you stand with us as we pray?